For the scripture reading portion of this worship service, we turn to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. We read this in connection with the instruction of Lord's Day 5 of the Heidelberg Catechism. In the back of the Psalter, Leviticus chapter 1. We're going to read here about the instructions for uh, the burnt offering, how to give the burnt offering. In chapter 2, you'll notice that there are instructions for the meat offering, and in chapter 3, there's instructions for the peace offering, and so it continues. Uh, We'll see in the preaching uh, why the book of Leviticus really begins this way. Uh, But it starts here with the foundational sacrifice of the burnt offering. This comes first. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, So God is in the tabernacle at Mount Sinai, and he is speaking out of the tabernacle to Moses, Uh, and is fellowshipping with him and giving him these instructions. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will, at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is, by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall flay, or skin, the burnt offering, and cut it into his pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire upon the altar, and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that is on the fire, which is upon the altar." But his inwards, his intestines, and his legs shall he wash in water. And the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor, sweet taste and flavor unto the Lord. And if his offering be of the flocks, namely of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring it a male without blemish. And he shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle his blood round about upon the altar. And he shall cut it into his pieces with his head and his fat. And the priests shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But he shall wash the inwards and the legs with water. And the priests shall bring it all... And burn it upon the altar, 
It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And if the burnt sacrifice for his offering to the Lord be of fowls, birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or of young pigeons. And the priest shall bring it unto the altar and wring off his head and burn it on the altar. And the blood thereof shall be wrung out at the side of the altar. And he shall pluck away his crop with his feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east part by the place of the ashes. And he shall cleave it, cut it in half with the wings thereof, but shall not divide it asunder. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar, upon the wood that is upon the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Again, in the preaching, we'll explain the significance of this being the first chapter of the book of Leviticus. It's in connection with the instruction in this chapter and in harmony with the instruction of many passages of Scripture that we have the teaching of Lord's Day 5 of the Catechism, found on page 5 in the back of the Psalter. Notice again, we're beginning the second section of the Catechism, how we are delivered from our sin and misery. Question 12, since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? God will have His justice satisfied. And therefore, we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? By no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature, a mere created thing, able to satisfy for us? None. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. What sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? For one who is very man and perfectly righteous and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also very God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, before you close your psalters, let's notice again the very first question of Lord's Day 5. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? I want us all to notice just how astonishing that question really is. And really, with that question, we really have an overview of everything that we've covered so far in Lord's Days 2, 3, and 4 of the Catechism. In the first section of the Catechism, we had three Lord's Days, we've had five sermons, and we've come to see how great our sin and misery is. Let's do a recap. First of all, remember, 
by nature, outside of Christ, we are totally depraved. Left to ourselves, outside of Christ, we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil. We are prone by nature to hate God and the neighbor. God gives us his good law to keep and we can't keep it at all. Second of all, we've seen that this total depravity is entirely of our own doing. God created man good and after his own image. God created us in an exalted position, endowed with glorious gifts by which we could serve God just as he commanded us. But by the instigation of the devil and abusing our free will, we revolted from God, we rebelled against him, we broke his good commandments, chose to sin, and brought upon ourselves this wretched total depravity, this spiritual death. So that it's all our own doing. There's no blame to be cast anywhere else. And then third of all, we saw last week, we've come to see that because of our rebellion in Adam, not only are we totally depraved, unable to do any good, inclined to all evil, but we are guilty. Not only are we totally depraved, that's a reference to our condition how we are in our human natures, but we are also guilty. And that's a reference to our legal status, our position before God's law. We are guilty of original sin, we are guilty of our actual sins, and we are responsible for our sinful natures. And God still requires perfect obedience from us. We're still required to keep God's law perfectly. And because of our guilt we stand exposed to the just judgment of the judge. God will not suffer. He will not allow such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished. As question 12 puts it, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. So this is where we are in the catechism. We are deserving of eternal punishment of body and soul in hell. That was last week. And the fact is, because outside of Christ, of ourselves, we are totally depraved, the reality is we have absolutely no way in and of ourselves to change these circumstances. And by nature, we're not even sorry for our sins. We don't even care. We are lost. That's man's situation. The whole human race left to itself is lost. In sin. That's the first section of the catechism. How great our sin and misery is. And so now here this morning we come to Lord's Day 5. And if we didn't already know where our comfort was found, we might even be hesitant, hesitant to proceed any further with the catechism. What's the point, right? We're stuck. There's no hope, is there? There's absolutely no hope for us. We are sinners and God's justice will not be compromised. There is no hope. Well, what we should understand, beloved, is that the catechism, the catechism is teaching us. The catechism is our teacher. And it wants to lead us into a right understanding of what the gospel is. And starting here in Lord's Day 5, the catechism is going to move very slowly 
And it's going to move very slowly because the catechism wants to impress upon us that there is no hope except in one place. There is no hope of deliverance except in one place. No hope when you look to yourself. No hope when you look to a mere creature. No hope when you look to an angel. But there is hope when you look alone to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. How can we be restored back into favor with God? How can we be delivered from our sin and misery? God will have his justice satisfied. And the only one who can make that satisfaction for sin is Jesus the Christ, the righteous Lamb of God. And that's what we're going to look at here in Lord's Day 5 and Lord's Day 6. We take as our theme this morning, again received into favor. And we look at two things. First, what must be done? And second, by whom it must be done? As we begin, notice again the very last part of question 12. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? And I like that last part because that's really the concern of the child of God. We're not just concerned about escaping the punishment of hell, but we want to be received back into God's favor. We who belong to Jesus Christ and who love God and who know God's excellencies, we want to enjoy His favor and His smile because He is above all things precious to us. So how? How can we be received back into His favor? Help me to understand. Well, the Catechism says, God's justice must be satisfied. That's what Lord's Day 5 is all about. I should have pointed that out when we read through it. The first three questions and answers all use that word satisfaction or satisfied. That's what this whole Lord's Day is about, the satisfaction of God's justice. God's justice is God's conformity to his own holiness. God's justice is his righteousness. And the catechism students know what that, mean, that means. God's justice is his attribute according to which God acts in harmony with his own being. He sees that his name is glorified, his law is honored, and that all rebellion against his law is properly punished. That's justice. And the word satisfaction means to make full or to meet the requirements or how I usually teach it to the catechism students. I actually make reference to Thanksgiving Day. And I say, think of yourself at the dinner table on Thanksgiving Day. And there's so much food and you can eat and drink to your heart's content until you come to the point where you say, it's enough. I'm full. And what do you say? I am satisfied. That's what it means to be satisfied, to say it is enough. It means then, more technically, to pay the price until the price is paid in full. So that God, in His justice, can say this is enough. The payment has been made. I am satisfied. 
So satisfaction is a legal idea. Either God's requirements have been met or legally they have not been met. And this is largely what Lord's Days 5 and 6 are about. Now, in order to help us understand how we are delivered from our sin and misery, I want us to step back a little bit and get the big picture. And especially where we are in the catechism. The big picture is this. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, we covered this last week a little bit as, as well. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, they fell into sin in two ways. First, they became guilty. They violated God's commandments and they brought upon themselves guilt. They became criminals. They became worthy of punishment. And then second, in addition, they also died. They became totally depraved, spiritually dead. These two things we refer to as original guilt and original corruption. When Adam and Eve sinned, these two things happened to them. They became guilty before God's law so that their legal status changed from being innocent and righteous to being guilty. And then second, they died. They lost the image of God. They took upon themselves the opposite image, the image of the devil, and they became totally depraved. Their condition changed. They became corrupt. These two things are two distinct things. And now if we're going to be delivered from our sin and misery, two things need to happen. First, our guilt needs to be taken away. Our legal status needs to be changed from guilty to innocent, to justified, declared righteous. And then second, our corruption, our total depravity needs to be taken away from us. We need to be brought out of spiritual death and through the wonder of regeneration, we need to be brought into spiritual life. Our chains that keep us enslaved to spiritual bondage, to sin, need to be broken so that our condition is changed from one of being corrupt, a slave to sin, to now being a slave of righteousness and being holy, being a saint. And here's the connection between these two things. It's because of our guilt, it's because we've broken God's commandments that we become spiritually corrupt and totally depraved. It's because of our sin and the guilt of our sin that we brought upon ourselves a corrupt, sinful nature. And now in order to be delivered from our sin and misery, these two things need to be dealt with. And more specifically, to be delivered from our sin and misery... What first needs to be taken care of is our guilt. Because it's exactly because of our guiltiness that we are punished with death. Spiritual death and corruption. Our guilt needs to be taken away first. If our guilt is taken away, then there's also the opportunity, the chance you might say, to also be delivered from our corruption. But if our guilt is not first taken care of, then there's no legal basis to be delivered from our corruption. Because it's because we're guilty that we're punished with death. So you need that guilty sentence taken away first. And then your condition can change and you can be set free. And here in Lord's Day 5, this is where we are. Lord's Day 5 and Lord's Day 6 are going to explain for us, especially how our guilt can be taken away. Lord's Day 5 and 6 are also going to touch upon how our corruption can be taken away. It speaks to that, especially in Lord's Day 6, when it points out that we need a mediator who can bear the punishment of God's wrath for us 
and who can also impart to us spiritual life. And that's even uh, alluded to at the end of question 14. So that he can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and to deliver others from it. Our deliverer needs to be one who doesn't just bear the punishment of our spirit of God's wrath, but he also needs to be able to restore to us righteousness and life. But my point right now is this: our guilt first needs to be taken, uh, first needs to be dealt with. That's the first step. And then having our guilt taken care of through the death the sufferings and death of our mediator on the cross, then we can move on to Lord's Day 7, which explains how we are also delivered from our sinful corruption in principle, in its beginning. And that's through Jesus' work of imparting his own life to us and grafting us to himself through the bond of faith, making us a partaker of life and all his spiritual benefits. That's how Jesus takes care of our corruption. And that's how Jesus delivers us from our corruption and he restores us to spiritual life. That's how we are delivered from, our two, from the two different aspects of our sin and misery. And the catechism students know this well. We're learning this. We're working through this. First we are justified, then we are sanctified. First there is the work that Jesus does for us through his suffering and death on the cross taking away our guilt, making the satisfaction, making the payment for all our sins. And then there's also the work that Jesus does in us by his Holy Spirit, taking away our corruption, sanctifying us, delivering us from bondage and slavery to sin and total depravity and spiritual death. The catechism students know these things, but if you haven't been in catechism class for a while, Well, that's why we go through the catechism. It's good to be reminded of these things. So this is the big picture of where we are in the catechism. And the point of saying all of this is to emphasize that here in Lord's Day 5, the catechism is taking a very systematic and organized approach. And the catechism is focused right now, especially on how God's justice can be satisfied, how our guilt can be taken away, so that we're no longer deserving of any punishment. That's the first step on the road to deliverance. How can we escape the punishment of hell and be again received into God's favor? Answer, God will have his justice satisfied. That's basic. And therefore, we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. There is a way of escape, but the only way of escape is this. God's justice must be satisfied. A full payment for all our sins must be made. We are in debt. And the paying off of those debts must be made. Now to add to everything that we've already said, we need to understand this as well. We are in debt to God in two different ways. We need to make satisfaction in two different ways. That aggravates the situation. First of all, we've sinned against God. And that sin must be punished. We must bear the punishment for all the sins that we've committed. That is one debt that we owe to God. But then second of all, we must not forget, we still owe God an entirely perfect life of obedience. 
We owe God a perfect, holy life. We must still have all the requirements. We must still keep all the requirements of the law. So there's two things. We have to give God a perfect life of obedience from conception to death. And in addition, for any sins we have committed, we must bear the full punishment for those sins and endure the infinite wrath of God against our sin. And keep this in mind, when we bear the full punishment for all the sins we've committed, we must also bear that punishment itself with perfect love and perfect obedience to God, not in a totally depraved, sinful nature. So we must live a perfect life of righteousness before God. That's what His justice demands. We must bear the full, complete wrath of God for our sins. That's what His justice demands. And we must be able to endure under that wrath of God in perfect righteousness. That's what God's justice demands. That's satisfaction. That's the way to atone for, to cover up, and pay for sin. If we are able to do that, then we could be restored to life and fellowship with God. Now the reason we read from Leviticus chapter 1 is because Leviticus chapter 1 is emphasizing this whole idea of satisfaction. That is the focus of Lord's Day 5. Really, the whole Bible emphasizes this need for satisfaction. We looked at it in the afternoon catechism classes a a month or so ago. Remember, children, when God made coats of skin for Adam and Eve, that's what God was teaching them. You can't just cover yourself up with fig leaves because your sin deserves death. The wages of sin is death. Someone needs to die. You deserve to die. And either you die or you need someone else to die in your place so that you are covered. And that's what those coats of skins were reflecting. The animal died in your place and you are now covered because of the death of the animal as your substitute. That's satisfaction. Think also when we talked about Cain and Abel, and Abel brought his sacrifice, and Cain brought his sacrifice, and what was the difference, and why did they bring those two different sacrifices? It wasn't just because Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a gardener. It was because Abel knew, I deserve to die, and either I die or a substitute die for me. And that's why he brought the lamb as his substitute. He was confessing he was a sinner, and God God's justice requires satisfaction. And Cain said, I don't have any sins. I don't need to die. God ought to be satisfied with what I can bring forth. When you get to the days of Moses, God instructs Israel on all the different offerings that they need to bring. And the point is they need to bring those offerings because they were sinners who need to make satisfaction for sin. And then you turn to the book of Leviticus, and that's really what the whole book is about. It's interesting, the book of Leviticus has been described as the catechism book of the Old Testament Israelites. The book of Leviticus was their catechism material. It taught them the basics of their life as God's people. And if you look at the book as a whole, you can see that the book of Leviticus can be divided into two main sections. First, how the sins of God's people are taken away so that they can be reconciled to God and enter into fellowship and friendship with God. And then second, having been brought into friendship and fellowship with God on the basis of the sacrifices made, 
The book goes on to describe how God's people are to live in that relationship of friendship. So the first 17 chapters of the book of Leviticus tell us how the sins of God's people are taken away so that God's people can be in his favor. And then the last chapters of the book, the last 10 chapters, tell us how God's people being brought into God's favor through the sacrifices now must live in that relationship with God. I notice here in Leviticus chapter 1, right at the very beginning, it gives us the instructions for the burnt offering. That's what our scripture reading was all about, the burnt offering. And the burnt offering is first. This is where the book starts because the burnt offering is foundational for everything. This is how God's people are able to enter into fellowship with God and be received into his favor on the basis of the sacrifice that was made, the burnt offering. And the burnt offering is foundational. There are other offerings as well. There's the, the, the meat offering. There's the sin offering, the trespass offering, the peace offering. But the burnt offering was foundational. That's why it's first. And its foundational character is shown in a few different ways. First, it's shown in the fact that every single day, every morning at 9 a.m. and every afternoon at 3 p.m., there was a burnt offering made on the altar of burnt offering. A lamb was offered every morning at 9, every afternoon at 3 as a burnt offering. And the point is, there was always a burnt offering being sacrificed on behalf of the people. Because this is the only way that the people can be received into favor with God on the basis of that sacrifice. And second, the burnt offering was offered by the people. This is also what makes it unique. It was offered not for any particular sin they had committed. That's what the other offerings are for. The sin offering, the trespass offering. But the burnt offering was offered in the acknowledgement that the people were inherently sinful. Apart from any specific sin that they had committed, they were inherently sinful. They had sinful natures. They were a sinful people. And so the burnt offering was first. Before any specific sins are acknowledged and dealt with, the people first need to confess and acknowledge that regardless of any specific sins, they were through and through a sinful people in and of themselves. So the burnt offering was foundational for entering into fellowship and friendship with God. There is no fellowship with God without the payment for sin, without satisfaction. That's what's being taught in the burnt offering. Now there are some interesting things we could point out about the burnt offering, but the distinguishing characteristic of the burnt offering was this. That the whole animal was given to the Lord as a sacrifice. The one who was making the burnt offering didn't hold anything back. He couldn't keep anything back for himself. No piece of meat or anything. The whole animal was devoted to the Lord. The animal would be killed. The blood would be collected, splattered against the side of the altar, splattered on top of the altar. The animal would be skinned or flayed, according to verse 6. The priest would be able to keep the skin of the animal, the person making the sacrifice couldn't keep it. For him, everything was totally devoted to the Lord. But the priest could keep the skin of the animal. But then the whole animal would be cut up into parts, and the whole animal would be placed on the altar and burnt up 
and rise up to God through the smoke. And the point is, this is how satisfaction for sin is made. This is how God's people are received into God's favor. The whole of the animal needs to be devoted to God. The animal needs to be without blemish. The animal needs to be perfect. And the animal needs to be wholly devoted to God. And the animal needs to die on behalf of the people. So the animal stood in the place of the people as a substitute. And that's how satisfaction for sin was made. Instead of me being perfect, which I am not, and instead of me being put to death for my sins, and instead of me being wholly devoted to the Lord, the animal, the animal who was without sin, who was perfect, the animal would die in my place. That's how satisfaction for sin is made. That's how the people could be received into God's favor and enjoy God's smile. There must be satisfaction. God's justice must be satisfied. Well, that's the first point of the sermon. What must be done? Satisfaction. Enough. So that God says it is enough. But this leads us to the second point of the sermon. By whom must it be done? So we get into more details here. Who must make this satisfaction? Well, answer 12 of the Catechism says, God will have his justice satisfied, and therefore we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. Well, can we ourselves make this full satisfaction? Absolutely not. By no means. Why not? Just think about it. I've got five things. First of all, remember, in and of ourselves, who we are by nature outside of Christ, we don't even want to make satisfaction. That's our total depravity. Remember, we're looking at whether we can make satisfaction in and of ourselves outside of Christ. And outside of Christ, we've already said, we're totally depraved, dead in sins. We don't want to make payment to God. We hate God. Second of all, The payment that we must make for our sins is simply beyond us. The debt is too great. We are finite creatures. But the sin that we've committed is of an infinite magnitude because it's sin against the Most High Majesty of God. Our sin is so heinous and we ourselves are of such insignificant value that there is in and of ourselves no way to make the payment for the sins that we've committed. Third, in addition... Even if we were to make payment for sin in hell, theoretically, if we were able to make the payment, the fact is, remember, you have to make that payment. You have to suffer that wrath of God with a heart that is beating in perfect love and obedience to God. But we don't have that. In hell, man's sinful nature is not somehow made into a good nature. In hell, man is still wicked. We don't deserve good natures. God's justice needs to be satisfied first. So even our suffering in hell would not be what it needs to be in order for us to be made right with God. In addition to that, we still owe God a perfect life of obedience. But it's too late for that. Even if we stop sinning from this moment, we became good somehow and lived the rest of our life without sin it would still be too late. We would still fall short of giving God what He requires of us 
in a perfect life. And then in addition to all of that, fifth, even if we could live a perfect life from conception to death, the reality is we would still bear the responsibility for the sin of Father Adam, Adam's original sin. We cannot make satisfaction for the sins we have committed. So that leaves us out. Well, can a mere creature make this satisfaction? Maybe an angel, maybe a lamb or another animal? What about an animal? After all, in the Old Testament, it seemed that God accepted the offering of bulls and goats, didn't he? Well, the whole point in the Old Testament of all those sacrifices was to teach the people to look ahead and to remember that they still need a substitute. That's what God was teaching the people. Look to the promised seed of the woman who is typified, who is pictured in all these sacrifices. That's also why in verse 4 of Leviticus chapter 1, the people had to lay their hand on the animal that they were sacrificing. God was teaching them with that too. The people had to lean on the animal. They had to press down on the animal as they gave that animal to be slain. And the point was, that's a picture of conferring my guilt upon that animal. It was a picture of imputation, making the animal responsible for the sins of the individual. Not really, but in picture form. And the whole idea of the burnt offering was to teach the people that they deserve to die for their sin. And the animal was a picture of the substitute that was needed. It's either the animal or you. Right? In the Passover in Egypt, it's either the blood of the lamb on the doorposts or it's you and your firstborn. But the animal was only a picture. Hebrews 10 verse 4 puts it so clearly. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Bulls and goats can't take away sin because God will not punish any other creature, any other created thing for the sin which man, humankind, has committed. If man has committed the sin, then man must bear the punishment. Man committed sin in his human body and his human soul. That body and that soul need to be punished. A human body, a human soul need to experience the punishment for sin that only a human body and a human soul can experience. A bull or a goat doesn't experience the punishment the way that we do. So it's not, it doesn't match up. It's not just. This is also why angels can't bear the punishment for sin. Angels don't have human bodies. Bulls and goats don't have human souls. God's justice requires that man or a man, that, that man bear the punishment for the sin which man has committed. Or that a man, at least, bear the punishment for the sin which man has committed. And besides all this, we can't find satisfaction for sin in, in any mere creature because no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. If someone else is going to bear the punishment for us, what that person needs to do is this. That person needs to go through the full experience of hell. He needs to go through the full experience of hell and offer the sacrifice that is of such infinite value that it is able to pay off 
and make a covering, an atonement for all our sins, bearing the punishment due to us to the very end. So, so the one making or receiving the punishment must, must be able to suffer in a way that has infinite value. Then that person also needs to be able to endure through hell to the very end, all the while expressing perfect love and devotion to God, while experiencing that forsakenness, without sinning as he goes through hell. And then that person also needs to endure through hell to the very end, so that he actually comes out of hell alive. He comes out on the other side of hell alive. He gets back out of death, back into life. He needs to get out of hell alive as as the one who's endured. And then on top of that, he also has to have the power and authority to impart his life to those for whom he died. He needs to do all of this under the approval and sanction of God himself. And he needs to do all of this over against the attacks and resistance of the devil. And he needs to have such a victory over death and sin that he can also rescue us from our own total depravity and our corrupt sinful natures. He needs to be able to have the power to penetrate the deep recesses of our heart and impart to us in the deep recesses of our heart new life. So he needs to not only need to bear the punishment for us, but he needs to deliver us from our corrupt, sinful, totally depraved human natures. And he needs to do that with a power which we ourselves can't, which we ourselves are not strong enough to resist. That's the whole doctrine of irresistible grace. We need someone who has such power that overcomes our resistance to being saved. And I've actually left something out. That person who is our substitute needs not only bear the full punishment for our sin, but remember, he also needs, first of all, to live a perfectly righteous life from conception to death and fulfill all the requirements of God's law perfectly in our place. He needs to be able to withstand temptations perfectly. He needs to be loving his neighbor perfectly. He needs to have a perfect devotional life and prayer life. He needs to fulfill all the commandments found in the Old Testament scriptures. He needs to be the lamb that is without blemish. He needs to do it all, beloved. He must be wholly given over to the service of the Lord. Just like a burnt offering. And the reason the catechism is moving so slowly here in Lord's Days 5 and 6 is this. The catechism wants us to appreciate these details. The catechism wants you to see the wonder of your salvation. How is all this possible? How is this conceivable? We're not going to find anyone like that among mere creatures. The only way in which a qualified substitute will be found is if God Almighty Himself does it. If God himself comes in our flesh so that he is very man, perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than any, all creatures, one who is also very God. But then there's also this reality. We remember that God is the very being against whom we've sinned. Our only hope of salvation is found in God, and yet God is the very one that we've sinned against. 
Unless we forget, of ourselves we hate God and we refuse to turn to God for any help whatsoever. Yet congregation, this is the gospel. This is exactly what the gospel is. Because all of this is exactly what God has done. This is the wonder of it all, beloved. We were the ones who sinned against God. We were the ones who made ourselves the enemies of God. We are the ones who by nature hate God and refuse to do what is good. And if we are going to be delivered from our sin and misery and be received back into God's favor, God himself is going to be the one who does it. He's going to have to be the one who wills to do it. He is going to have to be the one who makes the payment and satisfy his own justice on our behalf. And if God is actually going to be the one to do it, he's going to have to do it in the way of unspeakable condescension and humiliation. Not only is the creator almighty going to have to come in the flesh and enter his creation, but the creator himself in that flesh is going to have to bear the shame and the agony and the curse and the horrors of that hell we deserved. He needs to live a perfectly righteous life under the law in, a, in every way. He needs to make a perfect sacrifice. He needs to do it all. And he needs to do it all as one who doesn't have to do it. Who himself doesn't owe God anything, but who's doing this simply freely, willingly, voluntarily. And he needs to do it all, all the while we are yet enemies against him and hate him and shake the fist at him. And this is exactly what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ, and his life, and his death, and his resurrection. Already there in Leviticus chapter 1, God was telling his people, you see that bullock? You see that sheep? You see that, that turtle dove whose head is wrung off by the hands of the priest and whose blood is squirting out of its neck? That's a picture of what I'm going to do for you. You see that blood being splattered against the altar? You see the whole animal being laid on the altar, being consumed by fire, and rising up to God as a sweet-smelling savor? That innocent animal? That perfect animal without blemish, full of value, full of life? That's a picture of how God himself will give himself for you for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. To take away your guilt... And so that in his resurrection, he might also restore you to everlasting life. This is the gospel, beloved. To you who have been given a true and living faith, this gospel is announced. You have a deliverer. You have a substitute. And to anyone here this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ yet as Lord and Savior, he's been plainly set before you. He is your only hope of salvation. His name is the only name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Look to Him and Him alone as the Savior from sin. And for God's people here this morning, your sins are forgiven. There is a full deliverance from all your sins. God's justice has been satisfied through the once for all sacrifice of Jesus offered on the cross. You are received back into God's favor. Instead of God's wrath falling upon you, His love falls upon you because you 
belong to Jesus Christ. And here we see again, it's all of God, isn't it? It's all of our Father. He is the God of our salvation. He is the God of unspeakable glory and majesty and mercy and grace. Beloved, go forth after this morning and join your salvation. Give thanks to God and to Jehovah and Jehovah God alone. Give the glory because it is all of Him and through Him that it might all be to Him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we love this gospel. We stand amazed at the glory of Jesus and what thou hast done. We've seen our misery and how we were completely lost. But thou hast chosen to save us, Lord. And we have life. We thank thee for making us believers and for knowing Jesus. Strengthen our faith and may this preaching truly shape our thoughts and our lives. That we might live in the joy of our salvation to thy name's glory and honor. In Jesus, thy beloved Son's name alone we pray. Amen.